If you brought a copy of Scripture, you can find Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. This is one of those sermons that if it was posted on Facebook would get five likes. I, um, I was thinking about Mark Twain once said, he said, no one is useless. They can always be used as a bad example. And that would be the case of Lot. That would be the case of me. That would be the case of you. I am Lot, and so are you. I've discovered in my time with God that I'm a whole lot more like Lot than I am like Abraham. Lot was a friend of the world, in contrast to Abraham, who was a friend of God. And they are a virtual study in contrast, are they not? And so we look at this text this morning, which is one of the most famous, or I should say infamous, in all of the Bible. But I think we're going to learn some things you may not have expected. We do have to remind ourselves that Lot was a righteous man. Peter doesn't tell us that once, but three times Lot was righteous. But little to show for it. Peter tells us that Lot's soul was, quote, tormented. The Greek word means to be worn out by what he experienced in the sex-crazed culture that he lived in Sodom and the surrounding cities. But he did nothing about it. He was like Demas, having loved this world. He rejected the Apostle Paul. And I would say that some of you are like Lot. You are saved, but you're miserable. You're distant from God. Not separated, but you're distant. You're out of fellowship with God, not necessarily relationship with him. And when we left off in, our, in this narrative, you may recall that Abraham was standing before God pleading on behalf of Lot. He didn't actually say Lot, but he said Sodom. But we know in his heart he was thinking about his nephew and his family. Pleading with God, whittling him down. If there's just 10 righteous souls in Sodom, you're not going to destroy that place, are you? And God said, sure enough, I won't destroy it for 10 souls. There weren't even 10 righteous souls in all of Sodom. And then the angels went their way to destroy the place. And God left too. But the Bible tells us in verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom, not God, why is that? Why, why did the Lord not go? And the answer might be because of Lot's lack of fellowship with him. The great Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss translated this uh, Hebrews, or not Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 with these words. His, his desire was that the Christ might finally settle down and feel completely at home in your hearts through faith. That's God's desire for us, that we would our hearts would settle down with Jesus. And I'm going, to, I'm going to just sort of go out on a limb and guess that Jesus isn't completely settled down in some of your hearts this morning. Here's Lot. He's, he's in Sodom. The angels have come to him. And the rest of the verse says that he was sitting in the gate. And if you've been following the story, you know that there's this progression of Lot's worldliness. He Remember chapter 13, he pitched his tent toward or right up to Sodom. Remember that? And 
The next chapter, he's in Sodom, and now he's at the gate. Uh, the gate of Sodom was not just in uh, gates of major cities in ancient times. were not just entry points into the city. They were, that's where a lot of commercial stuff would take place, business ventures, and even judicial matters. In fact, verse 9 tells us in the criticism that these Sodomites have toward Lot is he has become a judge. He has risen to political status. Do I need to say any more than that? And when you're, you get honored in Sodom because you've shut your mouth about God, that's when that happens. Well, these angels come and Lot welcomes them. He sees something special about them, invites them to his home. They reject. They say, no, we'll go. We'll stay in the city center. No, no, no you don't want to do that. And convinces them, so to speak, to come into his home. And the scene switches to verse 4. Uh, before they lay down, he's fed them. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. All the men, young and old, to the last man. The Hebrew is very descriptive here. These were not just the dirty old men of the city. The entire male population of that city surrounds the house of Lot. Their lifestyles have been passed down to generations and even to the younger men. Verse 5 says, They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And some of your Bibles say have sex with them. The, the, the word to know them has, means to know, but, it, but in the context it speaks of sexual intimacy. They want to rape these men. And the context very clearly tells us, and other ones do as well, and I'll get to that here in a, in a few moments. Uh, verse 6, Lot responds. He went out to the men in the entrance and shut the door after him. He said, I beg you, my brothers, do not do so wickedly. Obviously, they don't just want to have a conversation. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my shelter, the shelter of my roof. Now, now you've got men's passions out of control and a father out of his mind. There's no way to culturally or otherwise come up with any excuse for what, for what Lot is offering his daughters to. But this does tell us, it describes vividly the pre-Christian culture of that world and the very, very, very low attitude it had towards women and the very high view it had toward guests in fact, as we said a week ago, hospitality was the very first law of the East. You took care of your guest above your family in those days, and that's the reason he does what he does. I have no words for what he offered of his daughters, and thankfully, they were not let out that night. But they're not to be undone. This entire homosexual population is enraged so verse 9, but they said, stand back, they said. This fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become a judge. See, he's a judge in the gate. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. 
So it's getting completely out of control. So verse 10, but the men reached out, that's the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Can you imagine? Oh, I'm blind. I think I'll keep looking for the door. I got a friend that uh, hunts. He was telling me the other day that uh, his friend shot a deer, didn't kill it, just stuck it, found a little blood, lost the deer. The next day, he saw the deer with an arrow out of, sticking out of its shoulder, chasing two does. It's called the rut. And while that might be funny, there's nothing funny about what's going on here. You have unbridled sin at its worst right now. And those who embrace, embrace rather the pro-homosexual theology, and it's increasing, who insist that the verb that they wanted to know, to know, only meant to get acquainted with them or to interrogate them, the context alone argues against that kind of interpretation. And that, any other interpretation other than the fact that these are sex-crazed men is, is, is hopelessly impossible. And no amount of exegetical gymnastics can overcome common sense. You can see, in fact, that's why, that's why when, when, uh, when Lot came to them, he said, don't do so wickedly. But there's a haymaker in, in the New Testament in Jude chapter 7, or you can pick whatever chapter you want, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So we know for sure what they were desiring. The so-called Christian homosexual advocates actually have a stronger argument when they go to Ezekiel chapter 16. A text that was written 1,500 years after the one we're looking at. And this is, this is something I want you to think deeply on. They argue that the real sin of Sodom was that they were just inhospitable. They were just not being very nice. Now, as ridiculous as that may sound, they also go on to say the real sin of Sodom was just selfishness and pride. And as Ridiculous as that may sound, take a closer look at this very intriguing text, again written 1,500 years after Sodom, and it's God's own personal, in-depth x-ray commentary on what was going on there. Here it is. Look at it. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that would be the cities around Sodom, had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did, not, did abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is insightful, is it not? This is God's internal x-ray commentary. He has captured and recorded, watch this, the root of the sins of Sodom. And they're not what we automatically connect to homosexuality. Look at the list again. You have pride. You have excess. 
You have gross materialism and you have heartlessness toward the hurting. Now, Ezekiel does record that they did abominations before God, so that, that is conveniently ignored by the LGBT community. But is this not an insightful passage of Scripture? Listen carefully to this. The root of every abomination is pride and self-centeredness. The root of every abomination is pride and self-centeredness. Is it possible that we have unwittingly sown the very seeds of this sex-crazed culture, this sex-crazed society, that we curse? Have we sown seeds by being self-centered, by being proud, by being arrogant, by being excessive, by being materialistic? I would suggest we have. We are a lot. There are over 1,500 years that separate Genesis 19 from Ezekiel 16, and when you put a time stamp on these two passages, it really opens up the text. God is giving us the root of what was taking place there in Sodom. The root issues, and there are always root issues when it comes to our sins. Pride and self-centeredness were the root of the sins of Sodom eventually leading to horrific sexual deviance. Now, it's Thanksgiving season, so we should say something about Thanksgiving. When you think of the doctrine of total depravity, those of you who are Bible-minded, you should automatically think of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 because that outlines how we are separated from God because of our sin, and the first chapter delineates total depravity, and it ends, by the end of Romans chapter 1, it's talking about homosexual lifestyle. But it doesn't start there. It says, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they, anybody know the next word? Thankful. Neither were they thankful. One of the first links in the chain of total depravity is ingratitude. Should not Bible-believing Christians be the most grateful people in the world? And when we're not, we are sowing horrific seeds of sin into the generation. If we believe the statistics, then roughly 10% of you in this very church have softened your view of homosexuality over the last 10 years. That's roughly 100 adults. 51% of evangelical millennials believe that homosexuality should be an acceptable lifestyle in our society. It wasn't long ago. We had a family in our church that left because their child had embraced a same-sex lifestyle and they embraced their child. They didn't leave mean-spiritedly. They just said, we're going a different direction. I should say. Voltaire, no friend of Christianity, the French 
philosopher said these epic words. He said, he said, sin is a vice of such awful mean that to be hated is but to be seen, but seen too oft, familiar with face. At first we endure, then pity, then embrace. Back to the drama. The scene now switches to inside the house. And God, for the first time, reveals to this family what he intends to do in Sodom. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, that's the angels, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Did you notice who the angels were concerned about? Did you notice what they didn't say? They didn't say, you got any gold or silver? How about that, uh, that chariot out back that you've been restoring? Do you want to bring that with you? How about that Persian rug? You got any other stuff you want to bring? No, it's all daughters and sons and sons-in-laws and people that you love. Listen. God values souls, not stuff. In Luke 17, Jesus spoke these eerie words. And I know I'm getting ahead in the account, but I want to give them to you now. Remember Lot's wife. You know why, you know why Jesus said that? He was, he was in the context of prophecy and the coming of Christ and he didn't say it because Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. He said it because of the reason behind Lot's wife becoming a pillar of salt. She loved this present world. This whole story cries out and begs the question, what do you really value? What do we value? I am Lot and so are you. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. At least Lot felt something. Amazingly, the angels tell Lot to go out and even try to get his future sons-in-law. They weren't in the house. That means they were outside. That means that they had to be a part of all those men because the scripture is very clear. All the men of the city, they were a part of that sex-crazed group. Lot somehow goes out to them, makes his appeal to them, and you look at the end of verse 14, it's all a what? It's all a joke. And by the way, that, that's the way it is if you're a true follower of God. The world will always see us as a joke. We'll always be the whipping boy for this world. So just figure it as your lot, no pun intended. Jesus told us that. Peter told us that. 
John tells us that in 1 John. I can still remember. I mean, there's no fear of God in these men. I, when I was first studying this, I thought of when I was, after I'd heard the gospel and before I became a Christian, I was working at John Deere's. It was during the shutdown time. So what we did was we'd go out drinking at, at, at lunchtime and we'd come back half inebriated. And I was with a group of 20 or 30 guys, and I'd heard the gospel, but I hadn't received the gospel. I was contemplating the gospel, but I was out there carousing with these guys. We came back into the plant. Another guy jumps up on a riser, and he starts preaching. He was drunk, but he was preaching. And he wasn't being sincere. He was mocking, and he was going, repent, every one of you. And everybody was laughing, but it wasn't funny to me anymore. I didn't know God but I was starting to fear him. And I wonder if that's where some of you are right now. You don't know him, but you're starting to fear him. Verse 15 says, as the morning dawned, and if you've been following the saga, he, he, he really wants to put us there because in, in the last chapter, if you recall, it was the middle of the afternoon when these two angels and the Lord showed up with Abraham. And then the angels went down toward the evening. That's when they showed up. And now you can just see the first gleam of light, the redness of the sky, the morning. It's the morning, but it's actually the 11th hour for the existence of Sodom. And Lot has been utterly unsuccessful to persuade even his own sons to come in from this insanity. Only his wife and two daughters are left in verse 15, morning dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he, what? He lingered. He lingered. I mean, he lingered. I mean, you have to put yourself there. Put yourself there with Lot. You're in the place, you're in your home, the angels are telling you to leave, and you're looking around at all the stuff that you love. And you think outside of all the people that you love. The business venture that you were going to make that day, the merchant you were going to have coffee with. And you linger. The word means to hesitate. It means to be reluctant that's what it means. Lot would choose heaven over hell, but not heaven over earth. And so the angel seized them all, Lot, his wife, his daughters, and dragged them out. And why did the angels do it? Because of the little parenthetical statement afterwards, the Lord being merciful to him. I love that. God didn't deliver Lot because he was righteous. God delivered Lot because he was merciful. That's why God delivered him. And I might add that Abraham was prayerful. The next scene in verses 18 through 22 is the most bizarre part of the story. On their way out, they're running for their lives. The place is about to just explode. And Abraham says, hey, I don't really want to go up the mountains. Do you mind if I take that little town over there? And God acquiesces. The angels allow it. 
And this selfish, proud, self-centered man (laughs) saves an entire little town. The word Zoar means little. It's the strangest part of the story. But then verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot had come to Zoar. Oh, I might remind you that the angel said, don't look back. Probably wouldn't hurt to see that there, right? Escape for your life. Verse 17, don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, everything, in an instant. The once fertile valley that Lot chose because it would support his cattle is annihilated. I've been there three times. There is nothing that lives there without help. All goes up in smoke, everything. And the hell of the moment was only the beginning for these sodomites in the surrounding cities. And by the way, For those of you who are scientifically minded, it really doesn't matter how God did this, but that God did this. The text is clear. The Lord reigned from the Lord out of heaven. Whether you think a lightning strike hit the combustible matter of salt and sulfur and and tar and all this and it just exploded and then came raining down, or you think it was just ex the hill out of nothing, God rained it down, which is where I'm, I'm more inclined to. It doesn't matter. God did it. And he destroyed it all. And then there's Lot's wife. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. For Lot's wife, that that was it. When she looked back, she was looking back at everything she ever dreamed of. Like so many of you, everything was wrapped up And what she had, what she possessed, all going up in smoke. And she turns into a pillar of salt. How that happened, whether it's because of what came down on her or what, I don't know. We're not told. But it's eternal. She's frozen in eternity. Is it any wonder that Jesus said as he talked about prophecy, remember Lot's wife. Lot's, listen to this, Lot's wife represents Lot's entire spiritual influence. None. Nada. Make no mistake, Lot is in heaven. But he is there without anyone that he directly influenced in this world while he lived not One, not one. Now he'll be rejoicing because, you know, all the tears are wiped away and such. And because he's been saved. But perhaps also because, as Twain said, no one is useless. They can always be used as a bad example, right? And maybe his bad example 
would be the means by which God would turn your, your worldly, lot-like heart back to God. Would that be worth it? Right after Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, he said these words, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Well, there you go. Remember Lot's wife. Why did Jesus say that? I think Jesus said it because God values souls, not stuff. God values souls, not your stuff. How many of you would hesitate at this moment and have to have God pull you out, wrench you from all your stuff that your heart is all over? I think Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, because God values souls, not stuff. I think he said it because God values influence, not affluence. Lot influenced no one. Are you? The barometer, the best barometer you can put on yourself is your impact in this world on people for the next. Are you making any? God values influence, not affluence. What are you pursuing here? And God values mercy, not massacre. Now, this was a massacre, make no mistake. But, but listen, listen carefully to this. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Not then, not now. Not in Sodom, not in your life. He loves mercy. And I love that expression. Why did God deliver Lot? Not because Lot was righteous, but because he's merciful. And he wants to be merciful in your life. There's an amazing story that comes out of our history of our nation. Back in 1829, President Andrew Jackson pardoned somebody, which is what presidents are allowed to do. But the man was facing the hangman's noose. His name was George Wilson. That's not unusual. That is that a president would pardon somebody. But what was unusual was George Wilson rejected the pardon. They didn't know what to do about it. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court and to the famous Justice John Marshall. And the verdict that came down in part went like this, and I quote, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. He may accept it or not as he pleases. A pardon rejected is not a pardon at all. George Wilson must die. And George Wilson did die. Listen, God is, in his mercy, is offering some of you a pardon that you have rejected. And if you reject the pardon, it's no pardon at all. It's based on what Jesus has done for you, dying and rising again for you, and if you will humble your heart really, truly, 
with humility and repentance, humble your heart and believe the gospel, you will be saved. You will be snatched as a brand from the fire. And some of you need to come to God for mercy today. Some of you are like Lot. We're a lot more like Lot than Abraham. And some of you are just like him. Your whole world, your whole heart is tied up in this world. And you're miserable. Why don't you come back to the one who wants to give you mercy? Will you do that? God, thank you for our time in your word and this story of Lot. I pray, God, that you would help us to be humble and see that this story is not meant to be something that we build a platform to talk about homosexuality and all these other deviant lifestyles, but to see ourselves, to see our own pride and self-centeredness, and to see that those root kinds of sins, Lord, give birth to horrific things. That should humble all of us, Lord. I pray for those who are here that have not been extracted from this world yet. They're still lost in their sins. That would be you, dear friend, and you would say, I want to be forgiven. I want to know God. I want to know Jesus. I want to be rescued. Would you fall upon the mercy of God and believe the gospel today? And Lord, I pray that Lot not being useless but a bad example would be used to lead others who know you back to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. And that last line in that song speaks of influence, doesn't it? Tell the world of the treasure you found because God values influence over affluence. And I know that some of you are probably anticipating this passage and you thought this would be a great platform to just jump on that LGBTQ community, right? Well, I'm, I'm not sorry I disappointed you because that's not what the passage is dealing with. In fact, what it dealt with, and I hope you caught it, is a much deeper thing, getting into our lives and our attitudes and our pride and our self-centeredness that give birth to these kinds of things. And for those of you who have a family member or a dear friend or somebody close to you that has fallen into this lifestyle of some form of same sex or otherwise, I want you to know our hearts go out to you. We love you and we want to reach out to you. In fact, if you're one of those individuals who would say, I struggle with same sex uh, attractiveness and whatnot, we understand. It doesn't make it right, but we are here for you. We're here to love you, to encourage you, and speak the gospel to you, and uphold you with that gospel. We're not here to condemn you. You're not alone. We're here for you. This message was primarily for the saints of God who would be willing to say, I am Lot. Are you willing to say that and to give serious self-examination to your life today? I trust you will.